Okay, let's open with a word of prayer if we could, please. Our great God and Father, we come before you this morning in humility and understanding that you are God and that we're not. Father, that you are sovereign and you control all, that you created all, that all this creation belongs to you. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at the scriptures this morning, to hopefully gain understanding and knowledge. Lord, we ask by your spirit that you would illumine your word and show it clearly to us and help us to comprehend and to incorporate into our thinking the things that we talk about this morning. And may you be given praise and glory and honor in all that we do in this place this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is week number 43 in our discussion of the book of Daniel. and We're over in chapter 9 and down in verse 25. So I want to just read Daniel 9, 24, and 25 as we get started this morning. <clears throat> so in Daniel 9, 24, there the scripture reads, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So we've walked through verse 24 and we saw that God has made a decree basically a decree of what's going to happen in his creation until the end times, and that that decree that is now being transmitted from God to Gabriel to Daniel concerns what the scripture describes as 70 units of time. Your translation, I'm sure, says 70 weeks, but it literally means 70 uh, units of time. And so we've walked through the verse 24 where six major, um, I guess, um, end goals are described. Six things which are going to happen in these 70 weeks. And we walked through those in detail. Three of them, I believe, have already happened. Three are yet to happen in the future. And then after you get those six things just kind of stated, this is what God is going to do in the 70 uh, units of time that are being declared, then the next verse, verse 25, begins to describe how that's going to play out and what it's going to look like and how these things are going to be accomplished. And so the first thing we noted in verse 25 is that um, Gabriel says to Daniel, you are to know and discern, meaning this four short verses that have major controversy over them and various interpretations and lots of debate about them are not given for confusion or that there might be debate. They're given so that Daniel, and I believe therefore us, should gain knowledge 
and discernment. That's what they're given for. Gabriel wasn't given a message by God to come and give to Daniel so that the church and all the believers in the Old Testament might be confused from that point forward. That's not why this is given. And we'll see that, uh, I believe, as we go through other scriptures, that these events are things that God was giving to Daniel so that the Jews might understand and gain knowledge and discernment and might realize when the Messiah was coming, even though they missed him. And so that was the first thing that we noticed in verse 25. The, the second thing here is that there's a decree that's going to be given. And when that decree is given, the clock starts to tick toward the time when the Messiah, the Prince, will come. And he'll come after seven weeks, and, or seven units of time, and 62. So after 69 units of time, the Messiah will come and be cut off. And so this is pretty specific. It's not vague at all that there's going to be a decree and then count 69 units of time, and then the Messiah will be, will be there. So the Jews should have known when the Messiah was going to be there. They should have been looking for him, because here it's given in spades of when he's going to come. Now, we talked about these units of time, and are they uh, days, are they uh, weeks, are they months, are they years, what are they? And so you, we looked and we see in chapter 8 and in chapter 12 that Daniel understands that a day is an evening and a morning. He, he understands that. It's written in the scriptures. So it, they're not days, this unit of time. And then you go, well, is it a week? Because it does say 70 units of seven. So a week is seven days, so maybe it means weeks. Well, the problem with that is that you've got 70 times 7, 69, which is 490 or 483, whichever one you're counting, uh, periods of time. And if it's weeks, then that's not very long, right? That's only like six years, seven years. And we know that within the next seven years after Daniel gets this vision that Jerusalem is not rebuilt by any means. And so the, all of that is stated in this verse is not accomplished within that many weeks. Doesn't happen. And so then you go, well, could it be years? And instead of being days or weeks or maybe it's months. Well, you can even go and look at the rest of scripture in that in, even in 490 months, it's not all done. Because that's, you know, what, 40 years or so? So it's not accomplished. Jerusalem is not rebuilt, even within those, that a period of time. So it can't, be month, it can't be days, it can't be weeks, it can't be months. So then the next thing comes years. And could it possibly be 490 years? And so what I want to show you in scripture this morning is that I believe that fits pretty well. And that's just another reason to believe it. You know, we look back last week in chapter 4 
which is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation to all the world that he had gone insane for seven units of time, periods of time, and then God revealed himself to him again. He came back to his senses, and he praises God Almighty who humbled him. And so we looked at that where something similar, it doesn't say seven units of time, it says seven periods of time is how long Nebuchadnezzar would be insane. And if you look at the descriptions that are given of his fingernails becoming like claws and his hair becoming like eagle's wings, then seven years fits that. And we talked about these things that in, in seven years, your hair would grow about 84 inches and your fingernails about eight inches. And so that your hair could look like it was matted down like an eagle's wings. Your fingernails being eight inches long would curl and would look like bird's claws. And so seven years fits what is given in chapter four. And so I believe that bolsters why you believe that this, what is interpreted by the translators as weeks, is really talking about weeks of years, seven times 70, 490 years. Now, as we go through the decree, and when, there, when it's given, and then we count forward, I mean, we should wind up where, when the Messiah was here, right? I mean, according to this translation, to this verse, that in seven units, 70 units of seven, the Messiah would be cut off, 69 actually. So instead of 490, 483 years after the decree is given, we should be able to count forward and wind up at the time when Jesus was here. And so we'll try and do that. So the first thing you have to do is figure out when the decree was given. Now there are no decrees given other than this one that God is decreeing 70 um, units of seven given in Daniel. So you could go to the Persian cuneiforms and see where de decrees were given. They're laid out there. And, and that would be good. I mean, that would be helpful. But I would rather find the decrees within Scripture because then you know they're accurate and you know that they're specific and you know that they relate to this decree. So you won't find them in Daniel, but you will find them in the book of Ezra. So we're going to walk through the chapters of Ezra, not in great detail, but in enough where we can see some decrees that are given. So that's where we'll be this morning is over in the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra comes right after First and Second Chronicles. And so, if you're a biblical scholar, you've probably noticed this in the past, that the last two verses of Second Chronicles and the first two verses of Ezra are the same. So I want you to turn and look at that so you can see that. Second Chronicles 36 verses 22 and 23, the last two verses in the book of Second Chronicles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So that's the end of Chronicles. Then you look at the beginning of Ezra, and it's the same. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, then also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So you see that the last two verses of Chronicles are the same as the first two verses of Ezra. So the conclusion is that whoever wrote Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles. Now, if you think about Scripture, First and Second Chronicles goes way back and chronicles the history of the Jews. So... Ezra, who wrote the book of Ezra, he he uses first person later on, must have also written first and second chronicles. So Ezra, being a scribe in the Persian kingdom, must have had access to enough documentation of the Jews so that he was able to write first and second chronicles. So he's a very knowledgeable guy. Not only does he know what happens in the book of Ezra, He knew what had happened in all the history of the Jews. He knew about even the book of Jeremiah, which if you cross-reference and you go and look at the cross-reference that's probably given in your scripture, it'll say that the Babylonian captivity will last for 70 years. And indeed it did. Remember we talked about that, that um, Daniel has been in captivity somewhere between 65 and 70 years when he has this vision. And so he knows the time is near, so he begins to pray. And Daniel's prayer is very specific. He asks God to restore the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people. And so you'll remember in verse 24 that Gabriel speaks to Daniel and he says, This decree pertains to your people and your city to the Jews, and to Jerusalem. And then you get into verse 25 where Gabriel continues and he talks about the temple being rebuilt and that 70 weeks would, or 69 weeks would take place before the Messiah came. And so this is all about the Jewish people going back to Judah, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding Jerusalem. That's what this decree timeline is talking about. And so you know that from what is given just by the words of Gabriel. But then you turn over to Ezra and we look at this. Now, this morning I also passed out um, a timeline. And you have a copy, I don't. But you can see in there, I started 
with the first capture of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. And then I go through all the kings who existed, who came during the Persian rule. Okay, and I don't go through all of them, but I go through a lot of them, at least. And you see in there Alexander the Great when he came. You see um, Antiochus Epiphanes when he came. So I've got those in big bold letters. And then you also, I mean, you can go ahead and you can see what I'm laying out. I'm trying to lay out the 69 weeks. And if you look at it, you'll see that I end up in, I believe I have down there, what, 28 AD? Is the end of the 69 weeks. So you can see where I'm headed. But can we pull that from scripture and show it out of scripture? Because what I put down on that piece of paper doesn't mean beans unless we can find it in scripture. It's just me writing words and letters on a computer and then printing it out. So we have to be able to pull these things out of scripture in order to validate that diagram that you have there. Okay, so that's where we're headed. And so I wanted to go ahead and give you that so you could see it and you could put in your mind all these different things that we've talked about because we've talked about Alexander the Great. We've talked about Antiochus Epiphanes. You see where they lay in the timeline. You can see that um, Antiochus came late in the Grecian kingdom because in the early 100s, you have Rome beginning to establish themselves. So not too long before that, Antiochus came. So it was in the latter part, which is what um, the interpretation of the vision said, in the later days of the Grecian Empire, there will come this insolent king. And so we put all those things together, and that was Antiochus. We talked about Alexander the Great, who was clearly described um, with his kingdom being split into four kingdoms, and he came like a leopard fat, with two sets of wings on his back very fast. All these things line up with what is given on that timeline that you now have. Okay, so I'm going to refer to that in not only this morning we'll begin to get there, but in coming weeks. So you may want to bring that back with you for a while while we go through these things, because we're not going to get through them this morning, I can promise you that. So we begin to look at the book of Ezra, and you can see at the very beginning of Ezra, what I've already read to you this morning, we have a decree, it says a proclamation, that would be the same thing as a decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. You remember back in get this chapter right, back at the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, where Belshazzar was king of the Babylonian um, kingdom. We had the writing on the wall. Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. That very night, the Persians come in and kill Belshazzar, take the Babylonian kingdom, and then all of a sudden we have this king named Darius. And so we talked about who Darius was, um, put it together with Cyrus also, that Darius and Cyrus were probably co-regents. That same Darius is still king in Daniel chapter 9. At the very beginning, it says, in the first year of Darius. So this is very soon after the Babylonian kingdom had fallen to the Persian kingdom. 
And one of the first things that Cyrus does is he makes this proclamation that, and you look at his words and they're a little strange. He says that God has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Now how Cyrus knew that, we don't know. Did Daniel tell him that the Jews are supposed to go back? And that's how Cyrus knew, because Daniel's still very prominent in the Persian kingdom. You remember that, I mean, chapter six is all about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den by Darius, and him being desperate that Daniel would live through the night, and he did. And so Daniel is still very, very prominent in the Persian kingdom um, during this year in which this uh, this decree comes to him from God through the angel Gabriel. And so in that same year, maybe a little later, Cyrus makes this decree that God has appointed him to build God a house in Jerusalem. And so all you who are exiles from Jerusalem, all you who are willing, go back and build the house. And if you go through um, chapter 1 here, not only does, does Cyrus send them back, but he provides all that they need to have the monies to be able to do this out of the royal treasury. Now, Babylon, or Persia, was also still in control of all the land of Judah and all the surrounding lands which in Ezra are described as the land beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates River, the land on the other side of the Euphrates River from the land of Persia. And what he says is that to the leaders in that area, because he had a governor established who was over it, he says, out of the taxes that you owe to my kingdom, give to the Jews so that they might build their temple. So he provides all that they need in monies. He also gives them the articles that Nebuchadnezzar took from the Jewish temple before he destroyed it and carried off to the temples in Babylon of his gods. Cyrus collects all those together. It's given very specifically here. I mean, you can see it in um, verse 9. Uh, verse 8 says, Cyrus had them, referring to the articles from the temples, uh, brought, now their number, now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 100 silver dishes, 20 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, and so on. So Cyrus collects all this stuff and gives them to the Jews to take back. Now, this is the first wave of the Jews to go back. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar took the Jewish people in basically three different waves from Judah to Babylon. He took, them, he took the first group in 605 BC. That's when Daniel was taken. He took the next group in 598 BC. That's when Ezekiel was taken. And then he took the last group when he destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. So in three different waves, the Jewish people were taken off to Babylon. In the same way, there are three waves of Jewish people who return 
from Babylon back to Jerusalem. This first group that go when Cyrus makes this declaration are led by a man named Zerubbabel. And so the first group goes back when this proclamation was given, which was 598 BC. Is that right? That's not right. It's 538 BC is when this group goes back. Then later, Ezra will take a group back much later. Ezra, and we'll see that in the scripture. Ezra will take a group back. And then the third group that goes back goes back with a man named Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel goes and builds the temple. Ezra goes and cleanses the land, which had become corrupt again, and teaches the people the ordinances of God, because that, he's a scholar in that. And then Nehemiah goes back and builds the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And that's the way that God restores Jerusalem. That's an overview, okay? So now let's look at some of the details. You have this proclamation given by King Cyrus, the first, along with Darius, the first king of Persia in the, in the year is 538 BC. Okay, that's the first declaration. If you count 490 years, 483 years into the future, you don't get there. So is this the proclamation that Gabriel is talking about? Or is there another proclamation? So you keep working your way through Ezra. Chapter 2 details all the people who went back with Zerubbabel. And if you look down in what verse is late, late in the chapter, in chapter 2, um, In verse 64, the whole assembly numbered 42,360. And besides those, verse 65 says, male and female servants who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men. And then he talks about the livestock. So there's almost 50,000 people <coughs> detailed in chapter 2. And he goes through the names and whose families. What I'm not sure about is, does he include the women and children? I don't think so. So I think the 50,000, other than the female servants, they are all males. <clears throat> but certainly with them would have gone their, their wives and their children. So you got a lot of people. It's a, at a minimum, it's 50,000. It could be 150,000. So lots of people. I mean, so they all can't fit in Jerusalem. So they settle not only in Jerusalem, but in some of the surrounding cities. And you can just imagine the people in the land who've been there for 70 years, and there haven't been any Jews. The land's been desolate. And now 150,000 people pour back in. You're probably going to notice that. And you're not going to like it. And they don't like it. And so these adversaries rise up. Okay, chapter 3 is talking about the seventh month after they get there. So uh, we'll see later, it takes Ezra four months to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. 
you, you can't go straight because you go across the Arabian Desert. So you have to go to the north along the Euphrates and then beyond the desert, come back over toward the Mediterranean, then come back into Jerusalem from the north, whereas Babylon is to the south. But you can't get there because of the Arabian Desert. So it takes you a while. It takes four months for these lar this large group of people. Well, we don't know how long it takes them, but it takes Ezra later four months to get there. Probably took them longer because they have more people than Ezra did. <clears throat> but they get to Jerusalem seven months later. They um, build the altar. And you see that in the first three verses of chapter 3. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the people of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on, on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And then the next verse says they celebrated the Feast of Booths. Okay? So they get the altar built, and they begin the daily sacrifices. And if you look back in Exodus, is where God told Moses that there will be a continual offering to him on the altar in the morning and in the evening. And we talked about this, that they would do the one in the morning at 9 a.m., they would do the one in the evening at 3 p.m. And this was every day, including the Sabbath, you did these sacrifices. And so here they reinstitute that. There is no temple, but there is an altar. They build the altar of God, which is specified in um, the law of Moses of this dimensions and all of that. We went through that when we looked at Ezekiel and the details given of the altar. And so they, they get that rebuilt. That's the first thing they build so that they can start the sacrifices because they're terrified of these neighbors and they believe that God will protect them if they start the sacrifices. So they do. So that's in chapter 3. Notice something that we talked about last time also here in chapter 3, that um, in verse 5, all right, we'll start in 4. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. Now, you should remember from our discussion, it was last week, about the moons and the way that the Jews counted months and the way that they counted years and when, how they knew that a new year was 
beginning was because the crops would be in the fields corresponding to a new moon. If that was true, that's the beginning of the new year, and then you begin to count the months, the first month, the second month, the third month. The months did not have names. The names were given while they were in Babylon, and they're after Babylonian gods. Crazy, they still use them today, but in the ancient days, when the Zerubbabel took these people back, they would have just been counting the first month, the second month, the third month, and instead of having names, and then maybe the year had 12 months, maybe it had 13. Just depending on when that 12, uh, 12th, month occur, 12th new moon occurred, are the crops in the field. If they are, it's a new year. If they're not, we go another month and have 13 months, and then the new year will be at the end at the next new moon. And we talked about that. So that should be in your mind when you, when you read things like this that says they had sacrifices for the new moons. Why? Because that was how they governed their lives. We're all driven by the new moons. That's how they counted their months. That's how they counted their years. That's how they knew when to have the Passover and when to have um, the Feast of Booths. And I mean, how do they know those things? Because of the moon. The moon cycles is how they based all of that. So you see it even here in Ezra that the moon is prominent, always has been in Jewish um, history, uh, still is today. Um, it's why Easter is next week and not, to, not today, because it's the first Sunday after the first new moon after the vernal equinox. And so that's next Sunday. So... Um, Anyway, the moon is important when you look at Jewish life. And, um, and they, they go back to that when they get back to Jerusalem. Who knows what they did while they were in Babylon? You, you, you just don't know. Um, they adopted Babylonian gods, many of them. They worshiped Babylonian gods. Um, those people never went back to Jerusalem, but there was what Ezra describes as a remnant, and it's a pretty big remnant here, but there's a remnant who go back. And um, Ezra speaks to that quite a bit. Then in um, Ezra 4, and if you read through it, it can be very confusing because in that chapter, there are three Persian kings talked about. You have Cyrus, you have Darius, not the same Darius who um, Daniel was under. If you look a little later in your sheet, you see where I have the kings of Persia listed there? And the first one being Cyrus, then Cambyses, and then uh, Bardia, and then Darius the Great. That's the Darius I'm talking about. So you have Cyrus mentioned, you have Darius mentioned, and you have Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes mentioned, and in this case, it's the first one. You notice there's one, two, three, four, five Artaxerxes. This is the first one. And they're all mentioned in chapter four. So you can get very confused. But, and he also talks about the adversaries that are against the rebuilding of the temple and, and the city and all the Jewish people. So I think the best way to understand chapter four of Ezra 
is that Ezra is trying to paint that all the way through, there was opposition to what the decrees were of Cyrus. There were people opposed to the Jews rebuilding Jerusalem. And matter of fact, in that chapter, Artaxerxes stops the rebuilding of the temple. Now later he, he recants and restarts it when he sends Ezra, or he sends Ezra. But in that chapter, he says, stop all this rebuilding because he hasn't researched it like he should have. So you can get very confused in chapter 4. I'll be the first to admit that. But basically the point of chapter 4 is there was opposition at the beginning, in the middle, all the way to the end of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And, and um, Ezra is just trying to kind of paint that picture for you. Because then in chapter 5, he goes back to the chronology of what's happening. And in chapter 5, now, Zerubbabel started to rebuild the temple. I need to back up a little bit and show you what they actually got done of the temple. Um, they build this altar, and they begin the sacrifices. That's good, but that's not what they were sent there to do. They were to build the temple. So in that same chapter, in chapter 3, you'll notice that they get the foundation laid. Yeah, verse 10 of chapter 3 of Ezra. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the son of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. So they've got the foundation laid. And the people are just hooping and hollering and having a good time. They're shouting, the scripture says, but one group is not. And we looked at this briefly before, but down in verse 12 of this same chapter 3, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. Okay, so they're, they're not joining those who are shouting. So they're not crying because they're so delighted that they got the foundation built. They're crying because they remember what the temple of Solomon looked like, and this new temple is pitiful compared to the temple that Solomon built. It's just, it, it is not the same. And these priests who are old enough to have remembered back before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, have now lived through the captivity, have now traveled back to Jerusalem. They see this foundation and they weep because it's so pathetic. And all the other people are hooping and hollering and shouting, um, probably because they did not see the Temple of Solomon. They were born while they were in Babylonian captivity or they were small children when they went to Babylon. They don't remember the other temple, but these older guys do, and they weep because this temple never, until the time of the Romans, becomes significant. And the Romans beautify it and expand it. Nero expanded it greatly, 
and spent a lot of money on it, but here it's just pitiful. And also the Spirit of God never returns to this temple. Whereas the Spirit of God was in the tabernacle and then was later in the temple, and then he left the temple during the book of Ezekiel, he does not go back to this temple. He doesn't go back to the temple until what we read in Ezekiel in the millennial kingdom when he comes through the east gate, which is the gate he went out of, and when he left Solomon's temple, comes back through the east gate and goes into the holy of holies of the millennial temple. So this temple is pathetic, but they're doing their best. They're doing all they can. And so they get the foundation laid, and then they stop. And they stop for almost 20 years. And the reason they stop is because those in the other people in the lands around them are opposed to them. And they send counselors in and confuse them, and they threaten them. And they say, if you continue this, we're going to invade you. And the, remember, there are no walls around Jerusalem. They have no fortification whatsoever. They're just in the open. So they could easily have been overtaken. And so they stop. And they stop all the way until you get to chapter 5, where the work is resumed. And, and this has been a while. This is not just immediately they start to do this. This is when... Um, Darius is king. So if you look at your timeline, you can see it's a long time from Cyrus to Darius. I mean, Cyrus, I have here is he ruled from 550 to 530 BC. Darius doesn't come until 522 and rules until 486 BC. So the time frame of chapter 5 is around 520 BC. It's been 18 years since Cyrus made his decree that you can go back, you can rebuild your temple. And matter of fact, God has commissioned me, has appointed me to send you back to do this. So we'll, we'll stop in chapter five, but I wanna get a couple of things on the table here. This is when Haggai and Zechariah begin to prophesy in Jerusalem. And if you go read the um, book of Haggai and Zechariah, you can see their prophesy, their prof what they prophesied. And that encouraged Zerubbabel, who is still the leader, and they began to rebuild the temple again. Now, the opposition is still opposed to them. So they come and they write a letter to King Darius. And they say, King Darius, these people, you can look in the Chronicles, and it says that if they get their temple and city rebuilt, that they will revolt against you. That's what they did in the past, that's what they'll do in the future. So they write this letter to Darius, and the Jews, they also spoke to Zerubbabel and the other priests, and they said, listen, Cyrus gave a decree that we could rebuild the temple. 
And so that's the decree that we're going on. And no king has said we couldn't rebuild the temple. So this letter goes to Darius with all this information that they're going to revolt if they rebuild their city. And also they say that Cyrus said they could build their city. Now they should be smart enough. It's only been 18 years. And they read, the, the same leaders read the decree of Cyrus, which said they could rebuild the city. But now there's a new king in place, and so they appeal to him. But Darius is not to be fooled. He makes a decree to go and search the archives and see if you can find Cyrus's decree. And they find it. And so Darius, in chapter 6, responds back and says, I found Cyrus's decree. And it says they can rebuild their city. And so he repeats some of the same things that Cyrus said, and he goes further than Cyrus did. So next week, next time, we'll pick up with the decree of Darius. So we'll have the decree of Cyrus. We'll have the decree of, in 538, we'll have the decree of Darius in 520 B.C. And then there will be another decree later. And so we'll look at all of these and put them together, because Scripture does, and figure out when does the clock start ticking. That's what we're trying to do here. So these decrees that are given in Ezra are important because they're the decrees that Gabriel was speaking about when he was talking to Daniel about the 70 units of seven. So you have to go and look at this stuff in order to be able to get it right, to understand it. And we're not going to the cuneiforms. We're going to the writings of scripture, which is why God had Ezra write First and Second Chronicles and then the book of Ezra, so that we would have these decrees and we wouldn't be wondering, what decree is Gabriel talking about? Because I believe in an amazing way that the scriptures will speak to us and tell us exactly what we're talking about in the decree. So that's yet to come. That's where we'll pick up next week. Lord will, if the Lord wills, and we'll continue to walk through the book of Ezra. Okay, thanks for your time.